You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Porter, welcome to The Big Trade series. You're doing a lot of big trades these days yourself. Why don't you tell us about them? You know, Peter, I know if you've been following my work, you uh, you know a little bit about the credit cycle and yep. about why why I'm so cautious right now about the quality of credit both in the United States and actually around the world as well. Okay. Uh, so uh, I think it's a great time for people with volatility so low and with credit risk so high. I think it makes sense for people to hedge themselves. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been talking about buying very low cost put options, not not as a not as a speculation, but as a hedge against your other equity um, interests. In terms of um, this idea of capitalizing on this opportunity, as you indicated, and as we've seen in some countries, is that typically these um, the state will intervene in terms of the magnitude of the downside uh, potential for some of these equities. When you think about a position such as like taking like an option position or buying like a particular put on a company that you think could be suffering from potential credit issues in the future, obviously there's a lot of um, potential uh, downside. You could basically lose all your money or you could make a lot of money, although there's always a, a circumstance in which the state could intervene and implement safe guards to ensure that the company is protected. So from a risk reward profile, how does that shape out for you? It really doesn't play a role at all in my thinking. <clears throat> in my experience, com- uh, co- uh, governments, countries will take steps to protect their banking systems. Yep. I mean, they will, they will intervene to protect creditors so that financial stress doesn't spread. You know, they can control the contagion, as they call it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they do that is because they are already insuring uh, banking deposits. Yep. So they, they basically, it's kind of like a forest fire scenario. You want to put the forest fire out before it spreads. So I can imagine, just for example, let's look at uh, the extremely high number of triple B credits that have been issued in the last five years in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So normally triple B, which is um, the lowest tranche of investment grade debt. Normally, triple B makes up 10 to 15% of investment grade issuance. In the last cycle, triple B made up over 30% of the, tr- of the investment grade issuance. And, and what I can see is that, therefore, investment grade doesn't, doesn't mean really what it used to. It, it has been degraded. Right. And the, the peak and default rate in, tri- in the triple B space was in 2002, where you had 1% of triple B default. Now, investment grade debt is very important to understand because investment grade debt is what's owned by other leveraged financial institutions. It's kind of the building block, if you will, of uh, the entire uh, paper money system. And without investment-grade credit, you, you can't have the pyramiding effects that you get uh, through credit expansion. So it's very important to the government that the B credit uh, remain viable. So I can imagine, just as I'm throwing this out there, I can imagine a scenario where default rates in B reach 4 to 6%. Uh, so four to five to six times larger than they ever have been historically during uh, the next credit contraction, which I believe is actually underway. So, and let's say in 2018 or 2019, you see default rates on triple B of four or five percent. That would threaten the entire banking system. 
because that would be uh, something on the uh, magnitude of 200 or 300 billion dollars in credit defaults owned by leveraged financial institutions in the United States. And that kind of scenario, I can definitely imagine the government stepping in to save creditors in order to prevent the forest fire from spreading. But I don't believe that that will have any impact whatsoever on the shareholders. And if you'll, if you'll notice, you know, we're, we're suggesting hedging yourself in the equity uh, part of the, of the, uh, uh, you know, of the uh, corporate structure, not, not in the debt. So take, for example, the, ba the, the, you know, the bailout of Bayer Stearns, a leveraged financial institution, had a bunch of mortgages that went bad. It failed. The government saved the creditors. They got uh, dollar on dollar for Bear Stearns credit. Right. The shareholders, the shareholders suffered a 97%, 98% wipeout. Mm -hmm. so, so even when the government intervenes in order to stop credit problems, it does not typically intervene to save shareholders. You could look at AIG. You could look at Fannie and Freddie. You could look at General Motors. You can look at all of the major corporations where the government stepped in to aid creditors and did nothing uh, for shareholders. Right, right. Okay, let's let's just switch topics for a bit and let's talk about the recent election. What are your thoughts and um, did you have a horse in the race? No, uh, Peter, I'm completely apolitical. Yep. Um, I, don't, I don't vote. I don't generally engage in political conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is that I find that um, it's completely irrelevant to, uh, to my work as an analyst. And that upsets people on both sides of the political aisle, but nevertheless, I believe it's the truth. Look, you've got one candidate who says he's going to take 39% of my wealth. I've got another candidate who says he's going to take 33% of my wealth. Right. <laughs> and it, it boggles my mind that uh, the people out there, you know, who say, uh, oh, I'm for this candidate or that candidate, you know, there's, there's, not, a, there's, not, a, there's not a hair's worth of difference between them. But, man, you get a huge argument if you, if you try to suggest that. Right. So, look, you've seen a huge rally in stocks in the U.S. since Trump was elected. Yep. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm almost positive that that fundamentally is because Trump is promising something that we haven't seen in America in a very long time, mm. which is an enormous fiscal expansion. So, you know, Trump is, is, is promising to reduce the impact of trade, meaning to reduce the disinflationary impact of the, the, the wonders of trade. And he's promising to up the size of government dramatically in our country. And what's so funny to me is that if, if a Democrat had promised these same exact things, he would have been called a communist and a traitor by most of the people who read my newsletter. <laughs> but, but just because it's a Republican who's saying it, then that makes it okay. These, these policies will be devastating in the long term to the United States. There is no evidence whatsoever that government deficit spending, uh, when a government is already bankrupt, is beneficial to any economy. And if it were, then Zimbabwe would be uh, Switzerland, and it's not. Are there any particular themes or sectors that could be compelling with Trump as a president, putting on your analyst cap as opposed to your political? Yeah, and you've already seen it. I mean, I think you're going to see, um, I think you're going to see base metals have an amazing run because the policies that Trump is promising would be decidedly inflationary. So you could see, you could have a lot, you could have a big move in gold, you could have a big move in silver, you could have, you, you've seen a big move already in copper and in steel, and I think that uh, those things will continue. I don't know if you remember our last conversation, we were talking about some of your 
your children and how you were going through the process of raising them. Do you have any updates in regards to um, some techniques that you've been implementing or some content or books that you've been exposing them to over the last year or so? Yeah, actually, uh, that's a great question. Um, my nine-year-old son came to me about six months ago mm -hmm. and he said, hey, Dad, uh, how do you do a differential equation? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't, that wasn't really a question I was prepared to answer, especially for a nine-year-old. So we visited the Khan Academy, and I was very excited that their website has been so greatly improved. I don't know if you know the story, yes. but um, this, uh, this fellow, Khan, uh, was a successful venture capitalist, I believe, mm -hmm. made some money, and then he was raising his children and wanted to, do, wanted, wanted to do a better job educating them and wanted to integrate technology into learning. Mm -hmm. And so he started going into his, uh, his closet and making these short videos and posting them. And then, lo and behold, uh, Bill Gates found them and uh, invested a bunch of money or donated a bunch of money to the Khan Academy, which is now like this really incredible online learning resource. And what's great about it is it takes a concept like algebra, for example, and it goes all the way from the very beginning of algebra, it tells you the history of how it was created, mm -hmm. and, then, and then teaches you step-by-step step how to solve algebraic equations. And, uh, and, and it's really neat because each video is only about five minutes long and each video is only about one thing. So right. you, you, learn, you learn each little um, discrete portion and, and you take a little test on it. And then once you've proven that you know it, you can go on to the next video. So it's really been an amazing tool. And for children that are uh, extremely bright, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful resource for parents because... I mean, my, my child spent three hours on Saturday afternoon learning algebra, and I don't know how he could have done that without the Khan Academy. That's fantastic. Although, in terms of like uh, the contents in regards to like history and uh, economics, I'd imagine that they still very much follow in line with what you would see in um, many major public schools. Does that uh, is that a point of concern for you? Uh, due to the fact that, say, for example, you might have more free market ideologies. Yeah, you know, I feel the same way about that as I do about uh, religion. Um, you know, my son goes to a uh, private school, St. Paul's, that was founded a long time ago by the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. And so there is still a veneer of uh, religious doctrine that is, uh, he is taught. And I kind of feel like, uh, you know, learning how economics really works and learning what's really behind religion and learning what's really behind economics that you're taught is all sort of like learning about Santa Claus. It's all something that you eventually figured out for yourself. <laughs> so uh, I'm not really worried about, um, about the uh, Keynesian economics or the uh, big government history he's picking up from Khan Academy. He will, he will be wise enough to see through those... Uh, um, uh, that indoctrination uh, when he's mature enough to understand it. What, what's interesting is, I guess, with um, further technological innovation, as we start to understand more through um, sciences and maths, then we're able to demystify some of these things that are unexplainable. But as, as of current, you know, there's certain limitations to that. And then ultimately, even the scientists, the Einsteins, the Hawkins of the world, they do try to use some kind of metaphysical explanation to kind of explain, for example, the origins of the universe. So I, I just guess it's it's a way 
it's it's a it's a tool that can be utilized to help explain the unexplainable until we are capable of understanding much more. Sure, I mean hu human beings have a tremendous emotional response to fear. Tremendous. Uh, I know this as a marketer, and the biggest fear that every human being has is death. And uh, people go to great lengths to find some comfort from this fear. And they have for, through all of history, and I'm sure they'll continue to do so. But I'm telling you, it's very interesting that most marketers who play upon the weak uh, and, uh, and their fears are, are, are despised in society. But uh, for some reason, we allow certain people who play on those exact same emotions with the exact same kind of bullshit we, we allow them to not only uh, take enormous amounts of our wealth, we allow them to molest our children, uh, we allow them to be free of uh, uh, many different social constraints. Uh, somehow we, uh, you know, some people even allow them uh, to uh, lead them to suicide. I mean, there's all kinds of different varieties of these, these uh, marketing uh, um, promises and pitches, but it's all just total nonsense. I was just thinking about the whole election and the whole electoral uh, process and, um, you know, many people will cite, hey, this isn't a real democracy because the popular vote ended up being a major like, you know, the majority didn't get th their person, their candidate elected in. But then I was thinking about the um, Declaration of Independence and how it does emphasize the Republic. And I don't think many people can uh, distinguish the difference between the two. So the, yeah, I guess... Americans don't know anything about their own government, and they don't have any idea how much our founding fathers despised and feared democracy. And, uh, America, I, America was never meant to be a democracy, and that we have become almost a democracy is terrifying. Right. And I, I'd imagine, do you think that you could have the idea of like a free market state uh, in correspondence with a republic? I, I guess that's the way that it could work in, in that idea. I, I understand what you're saying, and uh, I think that ultimately, though, those efforts would all fail because whoever, who, the person, who, the person who is willing to commit the most amount of violence is ultimately going to be the person or the persons who are in charge of the government. So you could you you could you could try to establish a market based government, and there are many places where you have something very similar. Mm. Um, I would point. I would point to Singapore and Hong Kong as notable examples of places where the government is, um, is, is run in a market-based way. So, for example, I mean, Singapore is a, a fantastic example of this, right? They have yeah. peak load prices on all of their, all of their highways. They, there, there is nothing in Singapore that is free. There is, there is not a single penny of welfare, you know? So it's a very market-driven government. But, but the reality is that Singapore wouldn't exist without the protection of the United States military. Mm -hmm. and, and if the United States government did not like the way that Singapore is being run, Singapore would change overnight. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think that, you're, you're, I think that uh, Doug's ideas and, and, and this idea that you could uh, organize a government using the same processes that organize markets is deeply flawed because it, it ignores the elephant in the room which is whoever is willing to commit the most violence is the person who will eventually be in charge of the government. Hmm. All right, Porter, let's try to end this off by asking you, what are like the top five books that anyone should read if they want to be as brilliant as you are? Oh, please. Come on, Peter. I'm <laughs> far brilliant. Um, you know, Peter, that's a really great question. And off the top of my head, I will give you an answer. <clears throat> sure. 
But um, but let me say something before. There's a preface. Okay. A preface to my answer, which is, I was speaking with Jim Grant last week. I don't know if you read Grant's Straight Observer, but it's a it's a beautiful newsletter. Okay. And he's a, he's a brilliant guy, and I and I um. I asked him, you know, how did you end up as a newsletter writer? And he said, well, you know, I was always a bookworm, and uh, and I, I that answer resonated with me. So. Uh, I don't know why, but from the time I was about five or six years old, I read constantly. I wasn't interested in television, and I, I'm, I'm no athlete, so I spent a lot of time reading. I can remember skipping school to read books because I was so engaged in them, I didn't want to be parted from them. Right. And my parents, <clears throat> my parents, God bless them, they agreed that they would buy me any book I wanted. So I would go to the bookstore every week, and I would buy five or ten books. And I would read them and read them and read them. So my number one answer to this question is, <clears throat> it truly doesn't matter what you're reading. It just matters that you're reading. And if you want to get <laughs> if you want to get a, if you want to get ahead in life, turn off the television, put down the Facebook, spend four or five hours a day reading. And again, it doesn't matter what you read. It just matters that you read. So for my book list, I would um, I would tell you that I would start with. All of the letters of Warren Buffett. Okay. I think that uh, he's not only a great financial sage, I think he is an extremely wise man. Right. And he talks over, you know, his letters, uh, you can get copies of the ones back to the mid-1950s. Right. So he, his, he's been writing an annual letter about the affairs of the markets in the United States for over 50 years. Mm. And if you if you read those letters, and I've probably, I'm no exaggeration, I've probably read them cover to cover close to 50 times. Right. If you read those letters, you will be imparted with a tremendous amount of wisdom. Now, when you say and, the letters, Porter, are you also including the ones um, in his partnership as well? Like, or, or are you talking strictly about Berkshire Hathaway? No, I'm talking about the partner letters that go back to the mid-1950s. And then he started writing the Berkshire letters, I believe, in about 1965. Okay. So all, everything <clears throat> you're saying, basically. Yeah, I've read okay. them all. And by the way, the earlier ones... The earlier ones are not nearly as good as the later ones. If you yeah. wanted to lighten the load, you could start with 1983 and go from there, and you'd get 97% of what I'm talking about. Right. The other interesting letter he wrote that I, I, I got a copy of, um, I'm happy to send you a copy of it, Peter, if you want to post it somewhere. He wrote a letter to Catherine Graham, a private letter to Catherine Graham in the mid-1970s, shortly after he bought his position in the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And it's an absolutely brilliant exposition of the challenge of pension fund managers and, and a great uh, explanation of why Buffett preferred to, in, to invest in the stock market uh, as opposed to simply buying whole companies. And as you know, that changed over time as whole companies began to trade at a discount right. uh, relative to stocks. So his, his, his strategies changed, but the point is just it's a wonderful if you didn't if you don't understand why people invest in the stock market at all, this letter really explains it. And he's He's speaking to a very educated, wealthy woman who has never, ever known anything or done anything in the stock market. Oh, so again, it's just it's a wonderful way of, of educating yourself. So all the letters of uh, Warren Buffett would be tops on my list. Okay. What else? You got, you got to share us a few more, Porter. Uh, I would tell you uh, to pick up a great to pick up a great summary of the Bible. Actually, basically, between the Bible and Shakespeare, every single great story is told. And uh, as a writer, you should know all of the plots. And if you read Shakespeare and you've read the Bible, then you have them all. Uh, and you can use them as you will. And I use stories from the Bible all the time uh, to illustrate uh, points because, like I said, they're all there. Every metaphor you'd ever want to make is in the Bible. 
And there's, a, of course, a reason why the Bible is probably the most printed book in history. I, I would probably get into an argument with someone who would say it's the Quran or the, the um, what's the Jewish book, the, Ta the Talmud? But, uh, <laughs> yes. We're, we're splitting hairs about that. The point is that um, much, of, uh, much of human wisdom has been distilled into that book, and you should definitely have a very good understanding of it. Hmm. Uh, what's next? Uh, what can I tell you next? Oh, very simply, um, uh, pretty much anything by Basiat is a very important primer to life. Okay. So Basiat wrote, um, uh, I would say he wrote two great works. He wrote a lot. He was a, um, uh, a French politician in the mid-1800s. At the time, it was a very volatile period in French politics. And he wrote these great books about the proper role of uh, the government in society. And one is called um, The Law, and it's a very short book. It's probably only 30 or 40 pages long. Mm -hmm. And the premise of it's quite beautiful. Do you know the book? No, I don't. This is post-French Revolution, right? Yes, it is. Okay. No, I'm not familiar. So Bastiat's concept was really wonderful. It was just that the proper role of government is to be part of a society, not to dominate the society. Mm. And so he said, he said that the government ought not to be allowed to do anything that the citizens cannot do. And it's a, it's a very, it might sound like a little bit of a silly idea, but you have to read it to understand what he's talking about. It's great. And he also wrote another book just about economics called uh, Economic uh, Sophisms. And it's a, a wonderful explanation of uh, economic fallacies. So it was Basiat, by the way, who came up with the metaphor of the broken window. If you've ever had a good economics class, you know that while, you can, while breaking a window might stimulate economic activity, it does not build wealth. Hmm. And he, he goes through a lot. He goes through a wonderful explanation of why trade is beneficial. He talks about the corn laws in England and the negative re re repercussions of barriers to trade. Oh, so Basiat is a, a, a fantastic read, and it will give you all the basics of good government and good economics. Okay, so uh, two more, two more. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming along. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a great uh, primer uh, just for um, saving and investing, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, 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 nothing comes to the top of my mind, uh, which is odd. Um, what about Uncle Eric? Guess, uh, well, yes, I, I, I personally am not a big fan of the Uncle Eric books. Uh, it's not that they're not good. Mm -hmm. I just, um, uh, there's something about the writing that doesn't appeal to me personally. Okay. Uh, and I'm, I, I don't mean to be critical of his work. It's, it's lots of very important ideas. The Uncle Eric uh, explanation of World War II is very valuable, uh, among, among many others. Right. Uh, but it's just, I don't think they're great reads. Um, right. let's, uh, let's throw Doug's newest book in there, uh, Speculator. You um, like that one? It, okay. I, I, I like it. it. I, <laughs> okay, I, I couldn't put it down, and I thought it. Uh, I thought it's a wonderful adventure. I thought it was very well written, and I thought it covered a lot of very important topics. Do you think he's going to uh, finish the whole series? Yes, I, I, I do. It sounds like it's going to be several books, and it's going to take many, many years. Well, you know, uh, Doug has a twelve-cylinder mind, <laughs> and uh, when he finally gets around to doing something, you'll be surprised what he's capable of. I wonder how this series will look like in the future. Like, if people will start referring to this as some kind of, um, you know, like some must-read, like you are right now, basically. Because I think it's still too new, right, to to be on the top of other people's list. But That's I'm right. just trying to envision this whole series and how this character is going to develop, and and if people will refer to it, and if it will have the kind of significance I think it could have. Well, I've got one last book for you. Okay. I, I can't that didn't occur to me earlier, but obviously this is a, a must-read, and that is the um, the Intelligent Investor by Ben right. Graham. Right. It's a 
chapters, uh, I think it's chapters 9 and 20, although the, uh, when they make new versions, the chapters change a little bit. But yeah. the, chapter about, uh, the chapter about a margin of safety and the chapter about how uh, about being a conservative investor, it just, it's all you need to know about investing. Mm-hmm. There's this fantastic app that I just got a subscription to called uh, Blinkist. And basically, it's it's a pretty good, reasonably priced. They have access to like a thousand two hundred nonfiction books, encapsulating about like a summary of the book in both notes and in audio. Uh, I found it to be a pretty useful tool to be able to, because as you know, we're we're in an environment where there's just thousands and thousands of books being released, and sometimes you want to get the jits of it before doing that deep dive. So it's a, been a pretty useful tool that I've been using as of late. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because uh, something that I've been doing for several years is I'll buy a book on Kindle, yep. and I will, I will read the first couple of chapters, and if I like it, then I'll I'll order the hardback and uh, and put it on my library and actually take the time to read it. So yeah, that, that sounds like a great tool for me. I appreciate the tip. Well, Porter, it's been great talking to you. I wanted to talk to you more about investing in equities, but we always seem to go off onto these um, deep dives into other subjects about philosophy, religion, and books. Yeah, well, you know, it is a really fascinating time in the markets, and there are so many great businesses that have been started in the last decade. It is amazing to see what Facebook has done. It's amazing to see what Google has done. It's amazing to see what Amazon has done. And so it's a great time to be a capitalist, and um, I'm, I'm really excited about the future, which is funny because, you know, I, I talk a lot in my newsletters about the risks of the markets. Right. But if you if you look at my portfolios, right, we're uh, we're usually ninety percent long or thereabouts. So I think that people have an interest in what might go wrong. But I want to remind everybody that uh, man, we live in a beautiful world. Uh, diseases are being conquered. Life is being expanded. Freedom is growing. Uh, there's lots to be bullish about. Are you still using that investment approach of putting, like, say, for example, fifty percent of your savings on a particular idea? Are you still personally doing that on a annualized basis? I actually gave up uh, buying individual stocks about six months ago because we launched a new business, which is Stansbury Asset Management. Right. And so, and so all so basically, in order to minimize any conflict of interest, all of my equity investments flow through Stansbury Asset Management and a blind trust that I don't control. Mm. Great, great. I, I don't know how my money is being invested, but that allows me that allows me um, peace of mind. Uh, no, it allows me the complete independence to write my newsletter without without knowing or caring about how it might impact my own investments. Yep. All right, Porter. Well, thank you very much for coming on the Big Trade series. We got to do it sometime soon again. Peter, it was always a pleasure. I think that you do a great job with this, and I hope it uh, is growing and does well for you. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.